BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about, you know, just days away from January 6th. And what's interesting is we're watching, <laughs> uh, we're watching an interesting rewrite of history. Um, you know, the revisionists, the propagandists, the liars, the cheats, the thieves, you know, those folks, you know, they've all got their stories. They've all, they're all got their well-funded groups uh, making their documentaries like the folks over at Epic Times just have re- released a, a a wonderful rewrite documentary. You know, the truth about January 6th. And you've got all these groups that are attempting to, well, tell a different story. You know, I actually had someone, you know, email me recently and tell me that everything that, that we know is false and that I should listen to this particular podcast who is, you know, who has all the conspiracy theories, you know, he's got them down pat, uh, that uh, 9-11 was, was, was really an inside job, but it wasn't Bush, it was the Clintons and Democrats, uh, that, uh, uh, that all the stuff that went on in Iraq really wasn't Cheney or Bush, it was the Clintons and, and Democrats. And, and of course, um, the pandemic was a way to bring Trump down it was obviously, you, you know the theme. It was the Clintons and Democrats uh, and the FBI this time because they've, they've bought and paid the, F, the FBI. And January 6th was the Clintons and, and Democrats. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, you know, the Clintons and the Democrats, man, they're powerful. Boy, they're well-coordinated. Wow, they can keep a secret. <laughs> which, none of which is true, mind you. But, you know, when the conspiracy machine is is churning out the garbage, um, well, it, it is it is what it is. But as we as we move further away from from January 6th, 2021, the the memory of it, how bad it was, 
gets a little less. And even you know, someone like me who remembers being horrified at watching what we saw with our eyes on TV, um, you listen to some of the spin. And look, the people, the manipulators who are putting this spin out, they're good at it. Uh, they're heavily funded. Uh, they, they understand the medium in which they're using. And there's a lot of them. And they're telling this tale to get people to, well, it wasn't that bad. They're diminishing it, uh, you know, blaming it on every everyone but who was responsible. And, you know, look, you know, on, on the far right, it's, it's all about, oh, it was a perfect day. It was patriotic. Uh, it was Antifa. And it was the Democrats. And now it's Hillary and, and Clintons and the Democrats. And on the other side, on the left, you've got the left now mocking it almost. Or not the left. Uh, a couple of Marxists who do a podcast have a new board game out. It's called Storm the Capital. The Truanon edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you can you can take control, according to their, their website, you can take control of one of the six patriots as you battle through the Capitol, collecting ballots, taking hostages, and fighting the police. Or play as the Capitol Police and use every means at your disposal to prevent the patriots from getting to the roof with enough ballots to stop the steal. Players are going to be able to relive, and these this is their words, Relive one of the funniest days in American history. Now, remember, five people died on what they're calling one of the funniest days in American history. I'm not sure it was so funny. I'm not sure what was so funny about it. I do know that people will buy this, that the flock will be fleeced. That whoever these folks are, these 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 the the Marxists, will use the capitalist system to take down democracy. And it's all about. For me, most of this stuff is about the money. And the soullessness of what has become our our politics. It's not about right or wrong anymore. It's not about doing good things. It's not about a system that works for we the people. It's not about any of that. It's about who can make money off of it. It's about who can line their pockets. And, you know, I look at this game and the, the, this game, this is what, what made me just, oh, I'm sitting here today just going, we've, we've gone, we've, we've really jumped the shark. Uh, I guess they should have brought it out for Christmas. It may have been a big hit. I don't know. But there's something wrong when when you're I don't know when you're you're calling one of the darkest days in our country's history. One of the funniest days in American history. I, I just I'm struggling with that. I know, look, you know, people on either side, they're gonna have their extreme views. I just look at it as something very sad in the world that we're in. That it's it's no longer about right or wrong anymore. In fact, you know, when Kellyanne Conway brought up the alternative facts thing, it was it was a brilliant way of of changing the narratives. Uh, I'll believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, and it doesn't matter what reality is. And look, January sixth was a terrible day, and we're going to have to figure out how, in the coming weeks, months, and years how people are going to be held accountable for it. And so today on the program, we're going to talk with Pennsylvania State Senator Art Haywood about his 
call for an investigation into Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate in 2020, Doug Mastriano, who got pretty well shellacked uh, in his race to be governor, uh, but did some really questionable things. You know, even back then we were saying, hey, why is no one why is no one investigating this? When he held his kangaroo hearing in Gettysburg um, and brought in people from around the state to blatantly lie about things that no one could prove. And under the guise of that, that this was a Senate hearing, swore no one in. And I made light of that as it was happening. Said, look, none of this stuff is under oath. This is all BS. And they had Trump on the phone for an hour, you know, rambling on about who knows what to continue this narrative that there was, they stole the election from him. Nobody stole the election from him. The theft was really about trying not to steal it from Joe Biden. But for me, as the days and weeks and months go along, will we hold these people accountable? Will we hold the liars, the propagandists? Will we hold these people accountable? I sure hope so. So I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, Pennsylvania State Senator Art Haywood is going to be here to share some thoughts on his on his call for an ethics investigation. Right back after this. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. You know, the third anniversary of January 6th, just around the corner, we're witnessing some push to hold people accountable for their actions. And and I guess about time. Uh, and look, we're seeing people across the country pushing to keep Trump off the 2024 ballot. Here in my state of Pennsylvania, you've got activist Gene Stilp, who's filed a lawsuit to keep my congressman, Scott Pardon Me Perry, off the ballot. And recently, Pennsylvania State Senator Art Haywood has called for an ethics investigation into fellow Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano and his extremely questionable behavior uh, around the 2020 election. You may remember some of it. We talked about it here. The kangaroo hearing they had in Gettysburg that nobody was under oath and all of the, the, the BS that they were flying around. Him you know, busloads of people down to the Capitol. Lots of questionable stuff. And that's why I've asked the state senator to come share some thoughts with us. Art, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you. And thank you again for allowing me on your show. So let me let me start with the first question. Why is this taking so long? Look, you know the the stuff that you you talked about, uh, the questionable behavior, the the busloads of people to, to D.C. on January sixth, the kangaroo hearing, all this. You know why why now? So we had a tremendous organization called Crew that's across the United States with fantastic lawyers and researchers, and they did a tremendous report for us that put all of the actions together. And it was based upon the crew report that I got in 2023 that we had such a tremendous organized case 
with respect to Mastriano that I felt that we could take the next step of the ethics investigation. And so Crew is an organization that has filed the litigation in Colorado, successfully getting the Supreme Court there to remove Trump from the ballot. And so they've got an amazing set of lawyers and policymakers. That report was the foundation for me to take the next step and file the ethics complaint. Now, I, I, while I'm not in favor of, of keeping Trump off the ballot, I think he has to be beaten at the ballot box by voters. Uh, I do think an ethics investigation into someone like Mastriano, who is a servant of the people, and his behavior as such is something that must certainly be uh, be done and should have, I, I got to tell you, should have already happened. Uh, but given the fact that the Pennsylvania State Senate is is led by Republicans, I don't have much faith that your your ethics complaint is going to get to get much attention. So the ethics uh, action has already gotten a tremendous amount of attention in the media. I think we've been on several news stories as well as in print. And at a minimum, we have put the notice, a warning to Senator Mastriano and all senators that this kind of behavior will be subject to an ethics probe. And that's an important step, not to allow this behavior to go unaddressed. Right. Now, I so I can't take the outcome of the investigation, but this first step is meaningful. Now, I find it interesting that their response, that the Republican response, that Doug Mastriano's response is that this is all just a stunt. Uh, in fact, Mastriano said this stunt will will not intimidate or silence him. Uh, you had the uh, majority leader's uh, spokesperson say it's unfortunate that we're seeing a new year start with political gamesmanship. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, back in, in, in 2001, I'm saying, look, you know, we should this this has to be done now, uh, not in 2024. In 2021, this stuff should have been addressed by the same people who are now saying this is a stunt in gamesmanship. So the conduct is the conduct. Exactly. And there's no, it's all based upon public record. So there's no stunt feature to it. The duty of the Senate is now to take up these, this conduct, take up the ethics complaint, and do the investigation and come to a determination. So whether this was done in 22 or 24 or 25 or 26, it's not the timing that is crucial. It is the conduct. And this conduct at any point is subject to investigation by the Senate to determine whether he has complied with the rules. Right. Now, the the allegation, uh, January 6th, and I, I believe he admits he organized busloads of people to go down to go down to the Capitol. Some of those people went into the Capitol, as I understand. Correct. That's my understanding. It's not only that, you mentioned the bogus hearing, which was all to discredit the election. He was very active on social media, spreading the big lie that the election wasn't legitimate. He asked that our votes, our 3 million votes, not be counted. And so he has been very, very active in trying to discredit the election. And this is not consistent with the oath of office. We all take an oath of office, which is we solemnly swear to uphold the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution of the Commonwealth. Saying that the election is illegitimate, saying that uh, the votes of Pennsylvanians don't count, 
spreading misinformation that ultimately led to the attack. These are all violations of our ethical duties as state senators. And whether taken up this year, last year, or whatever year, accountability is required. Absolutely. And, and, and the question has to be answered at some point. You know, this you can't just leave it hanging out there. You know, is he right? Is he wrong? Did he did is what he did proper in, in talking about, hey, we're just going to toss out the ballots uh, because, you know, everything that we do in this country, the sanctity of this wonderful experiment of self-rule, of self-governance is the sanctity of that ballot box, whether we respect what comes out of that box or not. Uh, and the fact that you've got someone who is sitting in the Pennsylvania State Senate saying, "Whether I, if I don't like the results, I'm just going to toss them out, I think we should have a problem with that on all sides of the aisle. Yes, and whether it's convenient or inconvenient in terms of the timing, the facts have not changed. It's not only that, the Senate has a duty to maintain its reputation and not be put into disrepute. Having this kind of conduct, which says that our votes don't count, which says we can organize people to go to the Capitol and then they get involved in an insurrection. This is all very unacceptable conduct, in my opinion. Now, it is subject to the Ethics Committee. I'm asking for an investigation. I'm not asking for a determination. I'm asking for an investigation. Now, the out, there's many outcomes of that investigation. Right. It could be reprimand, could be censor, could be expulsion, or it could be a finding of none of these facts are accurate or the members don't think it warrants any kind of reprimand, which I hope we would not get to the point of thinking that this kind of conduct is acceptable. But more importantly, I think voters need to know where, where, where things stand. I think they need the information. And is this only looking at the behavior of, of Senator Mastriano? I mean, there were a bunch of people who were involved in that, that hearing in Gettysburg, I think, of Senator Kim Ward, who was also right there on the dais of the— uh, and I remember saying at the time, they didn't swear anybody in, so everything that could come out of their mouths could be bold-faced lies. In fact, a lot of it, I'm going, this stuff just sounds so incredible. You couldn't write it in a in a, in a Netflix series that they would take. It was that incredible—outrageously— uh, just, just crazy, but there they were under the the banner of the Pennsylvania State Senate, testifying as if this is this is fact. So it's Doug Mastriano that we look at because it's the accumulation of his actions that generate the oath of office and the ethics violation. So it's, it's not just one event; it's the series of actions that he took to undermine the nation, all of which is on public record, that require a determination by the Senate Ethics Committee. So although there was other people with various levels of um, culpability, it is Doug Mastriano who has that record. And this is why it was so important that we had the crew report, which has a detailed evidence of his behavior and the chronology. Now, walk me through what a, what, it, what this investigation will could look like. I mean, um, you know, obviously the Senate is, you know, the majority uh, Republican. 
they will, you know, how, how does it work in the Pennsylvania State Senate with a Republican majority looking into this? Could they just, you know, brush this under the rug? You know, how does this, how does this look going forward? So the ethics committee is composed, it will now be composed as a result of the complaint and we'll have members for, uh, selected by the minority leader and the majority leader. And then that committee will make some determinations about going forward with the investigation, the terms of the investigation. If there's an investigation and some recommendation, then that recommendation comes to the entire Senate, all 50 of us. And then we would vote on the recommendation up or down or possibly even come up with another recommendation. Whether the Senate Ethics Committee will take this seriously I certainly hope that it will, although you have given some indication that there may be some resistance to it. But we have an institution that's been around for over 200 years and have not had a member engaged in this kind of outrageous conduct. In order to make sure that the Senate of Pennsylvania remains a respected institution with integrity, at a minimum, this is an investigation that should be undertaken. I got to tell you, Senator, uh, Republicans have shown me over the last couple of years that uh, don't I have no hope that they're going to do what you've said they're going to do or may, may do. Uh, they fall in line. And we were seeing this every day uh, coming out of Washington as more and more people are getting behind Trump, uh, as more and pe more people are defending his actions and the actions around January 6th. So I, I don't know that I have a lot of hope. I, I'm, I'm grateful and, and hopeful that folks like you are going to keep fighting the good fight on this because we we desperately need people like you if we're going to save our democracy to be able to stand up and, and and call this stuff out when when necessary thank you and you know I, i'm more hopeful i could be uh have my hope misplaced i was part of a committee that investigated kathleen kane that was called by the senate and that was based on uh, her issues with her law license and at that time it was Democrats and Republicans. I was a member of that committee. We did a significant investigation, produced some outcomes. So uh, we'll see if we will have the same kind of approach that we had with Kathleen Kane as we will now have with Senator Mastriano. That's why I love you, Art. You've got great optimism. <laughs> uh, and I, I absolutely do. But I, I, before I let you go, I got to, uh, with the January 1st having just passed, uh, what, 22 states uh, raising their minimum wage, some 10 million workers going to see an increase uh, in wages, going to put an additional, what, $7, uh, $7 billion in wages into workers' pockets. Uh, Pennsylvania not going to be one of those states again. Uh, the last time Pennsylvania raised its minimum wage was, what, 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Rendell was governor. The, 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 the chant was 715, nothing in between. Uh, we have not, as a state, raised that minimum wage since. Obviously, the federal ra minimum raise in 2009 up to seven and a quarter. Uh, are we going to see anything, any movement on a minimum wage increase in Pennsylvania, or are we going to pull West Virginia down even further? Rick, I'm more hopeful that we will raise the minimum wage than we will get a positive action on my complaint. There's been significant <laughs> negotiation in the, uh, in the Senate. You already may know that the House has already passed legislation to get us to $15 an hour in, a, in a several in several years, and it's in the Senate. So we've got one chamber already done. 
The governor's ready to sign it. There's um, some concern that the Republicans are not ready to hit 15. Um, so we'll see how that negotiation goes. Of course, 15 is, is the right number. But 725 is the wrong number. And we got to accept that that is the wrong number. Well, I mean, New York's already at 16. Um, Maryland's already at 15. And we're still at 725. So this argument, and maybe you've heard it in the past, I know my friends at the Commonwealth Foundation used to make it that, you know, the jobs would flow to where the wages were cheapest. Shouldn't we be stealing jobs from New York and in Maryland by the droves? Shouldn't be shouldn't employers be coming here by the you know, by the by the truckload to, to take advantage of our low, low wages? Yeah, that's the low wage theory, but it's not the low wage reality. And in fact, it's much more likely that people are going to New Jersey and New York from Philadelphia, from Pennsylvania from Erie, from some of these border areas so that they can get higher pay. And we're surrounded by states that all have higher pay. And it would not be surprising to me that individuals, low-paid individuals, would move to a state where they can make more money and therefore have a higher standard of living. And here's another argument that I have heard, which is that the market has already increased wages and that people are already making 12 and 15 an hour. Of course, that's true for some. However, the Department of Labor and Industry has shared with me that there are over 400,000 Pennsylvanians making under nine and a quarter, over 400,000. And that number will even go higher if you look at those under 10, higher if those who are under 11. And so the market has left hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvanians behind and it's up to the General Assembly to raise their pay. Most certainly without question. And anything we can do to help push that along, I want to make sure we're at the front of that because uh, I think it's an important issue. I think it's an important issue for our budgets. I think it's an important issue for our main streets. I think it's an important issue for our families and for children and health care and all that stuff uh, that people make better wages. Uh, have better opportunities to support their families and their communities. Uh, so anything we can do. But Art, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Keep up the great work and the fight. I'd love to talk to, you, talk to you again real soon. Great. Great to see you, Rick. Thank you so much. You as well, our good friend, Pennsylvania State Senator Art Haywood. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, is it about time that we start holding these people accountable? Is it about time we start, you know, maybe some investigations, maybe, you know, something? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Rick Smith Show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Rick Smith Show. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find all that and much more at thericksmithshow.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. I gotta tell you, I, I really like Art Haywood. Good guy. Wish we had more people in, in, in state legislatures across the country like Art. Uh, someone who's going to stand up and fight for working people and for truth, truth, democracy, and the American way, if you will. But look, good, good guy. Uh, and the fact that, you know, he has done, he's done this, uh, you know, look, he's going to take some slings and arrows, certainly. Uh, but this is a guy who's in it for the right reasons. And, uh, and for me, the fact that, uh, that the Republican response was, wow, that's a gimmick. Uh, you, know, you know, they're trying to silence me, you know, not addressing the issue. And this is what they're going to do. This is their M.O., uh, you know, just to change the topic. Uh, so get get ready for that. 
Uh, but the fact that, you know, as, as Art pointed out, maybe, possibly in Pennsylvania, an increase in the minimum wage, maybe about time, don't you think? The last time it was passed, a, a minimum wage increase in this state, 2006. We had been on the air just over a year. Uh, that that that's a long time ago, and and the sad reality is is uh, inflation you know has just eaten away uh, the minimum wage down to nothing. And in, in fact, you, you go back to you know the Reagan years when they didn't raise the minimum wage during during his tenure. They didn't raise it during the Obama years. They didn't raise it during the uh, during the, uh, the the Trump years. They haven't raised it during the the Biden years yet. Um, working working people are struggling. Now, coming out of the pandemic with the, the rise of, of union activity and the, you know, the push for, of workers saying, hey, we've had enough, that's raised wages. So that's a good thing. But wait till you know, a downturn happens. That all goes away. We've seen this movie before, which is why, again, we most certainly need to have this put into place in the law and made sure that, that people get the wages that they earn. Uh, for folks watching on Free Speech TV, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here tomorrow. For our radio audience, we're going to take a quick break right back after this. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something on your mind, something I said got under your skin, made you angry? By all means, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Arkansas Traveler is an old-time song of folk humor that tells of a well-heeled dandy who gets lost while traveling through the Ozark Mountains. He comes upon a backwoods farmer and shouts out, Hey, farmer, where does this road go? Not missing a beat, the farmer says, I've lived here all my life, stranger, and it ain't gone nowhere yet. A corny joke, yet the current U.S. Congress has traveled that same nowhere road all year long in a fruitless attempt to reach agreement on a rewrite of America's basic farm bill. This failure is a very big deal and wholly irresponsible. The bill is a five-year, $700 billion package that not only doles out federal crop subsidies, which have largely gone to huge agribusiness operations, but it also provides food stamps for millions of poor families, money for vital ag conservation programs, and economic development work in thousands of rural counties. So why the dead end? It's caused by the same plutocratic, theocratic nuttiness of Republican lawmakers who put their extremist right-wing ideology and corporate servitude above all the other needs of regular people in our country. Because of their internal chaos and political grandstanding, 
the old status quo farm bill had to be extended for another year. Yet, that's not all bad news, for a whole new constituency has begun rallying to write a truly innovative, forward-looking farm, food, labor, climate bill that fosters the common good. This is Jim Hightower saying, let's turn the dead-end year into a positive opportunity to build public support in 2024 for fundamental democratic change in America's food direction. The way to get there is not through more backroom Washington deals, but by going straight to the people, mobilizing family farmers, food workers, consumers, climate activists, and others behind a revitalized system that works for us. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1965. That was the day that 8,000 social workers went on strike in New York City. For 28 days that bitter, cold January, these workers marched on the picket lines. They were members of the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees, District Council 37, and the Social Service Employees Union. In walking off the job, these working people defied a New York law that forbade public sector workers from going on strike. Ten of the city's 25 welfare offices were completely shut down by the strike. One of the main issues of the action was the massive caseload each worker was expected to carry. Some of the workers who helped organize the action brought their experiences from the civil rights movement, and specifically in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality. They were fighting not only for better working conditions, but also better services for their clients. One rallying call for the strike became rehabilitation, not humiliation. Welfare rights and civil rights activists supported the work action. Quickly, the city moved to get an injunction against these working people who were standing up for better conditions. Mayor Robert Wagner fired all of the striking workers. 19 strike leaders were thrown in jail for two weeks. With mounting pressure coming from labor and civil rights leaders, the city agreed to appoint a five-person panel to settle the dispute. The resulting contract made considerable gains for the social workers. Caseloads were capped at 60 clients. They also won improvements in pay, health insurance, vacation, and sick time. The strike is seen as an important victory by public sector workers, not only gaining a better workplace, but also improving service to the public. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. $34 trillion. $34 trillion. That is how much the U.S. is now in debt. $34 trillion. And I, again, I find it cute that conservatives now seem to care about uh, the debt. Now it's something that they, they, they care about. You hear them whining... And this is one of those things. Every time there's a Democrat in the White House, you hear conservatives talk about how much they care about debt and deficits, how much now they care about spending, how much now they care about, you know, the future for our children. And then they throw out $34 trillion. Now, remember, you know, in four years under Trump, uh, Trump and the, the MAGA crowd, responsible for $8 trillion of that, over a quarter, in just four years, mind you. Remember, when Clinton left office in 2000, we were talking about what's America going to look like when we have no more debt? 
when Clinton left office with a balanced budget, with a surplus that they were projecting very soon would have paid off the debt and made us a debt-free country, had the, the, the economic minds, you know, baffled. What are we going to do? What would the country look like? What or what? And then set out to make sure that that never happened because the first thing George W. Bush did was give billionaires a whole boatload of money. And then we had a crisis. Uh, we can argue about whether that was uh, something that was allowed to happen, something that happened. It happened. We spent a boatload of money. I would argue a lot of it misspent uh, on, a, our, on our misadventure in Iraq. But we spent trillions in the sand, enriching corporate America, enriching the, the 1%. 2008, we have an economic collapse, another Bush, another Republican uh, collapse. And we've got to spend trillions more to ensure the economy doesn't spiral into depression. And who do we make whole again? Not not workers and homeowners and communities. No, no. Banks and wealthy people and shareholders. And we seem to do a lot of this. Uh, you know, Go back to the 80s with the savings and loans. We make, we make rich people whole. And we, I know we love this. We're a capitalist country. Yeah, if you're a poor person, cutthroat capitalism is your reality. But if you're at the top of the heap, you know, we socialize your risk because, you know, we need you. And we're going to give you massive tax breaks. So when I, I look at this $34 trillion number, which is something that I've been watching go up, administration after administration, saying we should do something about this, you know, like raise taxes on rich people. You know, I am, after all, a tax and spend liberal. I believe we tax rich people and the people who have the money and use that money to pay our bills, to invest in things we need like infrastructure and good jobs and healthcare and education and all of those childcare, all those things that we need as a society. We invest in those, but we got to pay for it. And you know, you get the argument from the right, well, you just want everything for free. No, no, I don't want everything for free. You got to pay for it. And you pay for it by, by taxing people who have all the money, who have seen all of the economic gains in my lifetime. This is the frustrating part of this. You know, I keep saying, you know how we, we solve our budget problems? We get higher wages for working people. Wages go up. Tax, taxes go up. Tax receipts go up. Uh, the more money you make, the little bit more taxes you pay, the more you pay, pay your deficits, the more you pay your debts, the more you... Spend on, on the things that we need. That's how this game works, and, and that's how they've destroyed this. That's how they've destroyed this system. They've strangled wages so that the money coming into government is, is, is held down, and they give away the, the, the tax base at the top because, hey, hey, you know, the rich people, they're smart. They know what to do with the money, and they are. They do. They know what to do with it. Make more money for themselves. We know that the 1% at the very top, our, one, our top 1%, they're responsible for more than a third of unpaid taxes. And yet, when we said, hey, when Joe Biden said, hey, we're going we're gonna to hire some more IRS agents to, to look into these tax returns. We're going to put some money into enforcement. Republicans lost their minds and are still losing their minds. In fact, one of the only 
pledges that you're getting out of you know Trump and many of the Republicans in 2024 is that we're going to gut the IRS so rich people can continue to cheat. That's their pledge to the American worker. We're going to ensure that the rich people don't pay the taxes. That's it. Instead of going, you know, your tax policy kind of sucks. That that Trump tax plan, the, the tax plan and jobs act or whatever it was, that was supposed to give tax breaks to working people that have already dried up, um, that the massive, massive majority of it went to the top 1% and 0.1%. How about we look at that? How about we look at the Bush tax cuts? How about we look at a lot of the, the Reagan era tax cuts even? How about we go back to a good socialist president like Dwight Eisenhower's tax code where we, we tax some of these billionaires out of existence? No, we can't have that. Rick, who would then create the jobs? Which is just one of the most ludicrous things that you're going to hear. And the, the thing is, I, I come back to this $34 trillion number. And again, over the years, it's been going up and up and up. And I've been saying, you know, we need to, we need to do something about this. Uh, and my solution has always been raise taxes on rich people. Uh, you know, cut spending where we can, where we should. You know, subsidies for corporate America, for oil companies. Uh, subsidizing risks on Wall Street. Uh, you know, socializing risk for our, our, our capitalist class. Where the right says, no, 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 we need to gut Social Security. We need to go after Medicare. We need to go after those entitlement programs. We need to cut food stamps for, for hungry children. No, no. Make it, it'll make them stronger, make them tougher, make them want to pull themselves up by their, by their bootstraps. Isn't that what we're told? Is that not what we're told? And I'm not being hyperbolic here. This is the argument. You know, and, and I hate the red hat, blue hat, but this is a red hat, blue hat issue. Republicans are saying, we want to gut Social Security. We want to gut Medicare. We want to gut the social safety net program even more than we've done over the last 40, 50 years. We're going to undo every bit of Johnson's uh, Great Society legacy. We're going to undo all of even FDR's legacy. We're going to go back to the good old days. Or if you're hungry enough and desperate enough to work for poverty wages, then that's your right. It's your liberty. It's your right as an American to be exploited, to work 100 hours a week for a buck an hour. That's the world they want to take us to. They want us to go back to the good old days of the Lochner era. Only worse. If you can imagine. And this is where, you know, I look at the arguments that are coming out around this, this $34 trillion, uh, of which, you know, I saw a bunch of responses today of, this is what happens when you don't, when you, 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 you give people money, when you, you print money to keep people not to work. Nonsense. This is what happens when you have an entitlement class of rich people who have all of the resources to lobby and get whatever they want from a political system that they control and a media system that they control that to convince working people that it's the poor person behind them that's screwing them over. That's the amazing part to me. 
when you look at the, the reality, the tax policies the Republican Party has moved forth on, has added to our debt massively, has created a uh, haves and have-not country, the two Americans John Edwards talked about back in 2004, and has, until recently, destroyed the incentive for people to work. It used to be that work made lives better. Did. You know, Reagan was right. You know, best anti-poverty program's a job. And I still agree with that. I amend it. I say a union job, come with good wages, benefits, you know, health care, retirement security. So the question is, is where, you know, in this moment, you know, because we're, we're looking down the barrel of potentially, who knows, you know, more chaos uh, around the, the, the budget and deficits and all this. As a country, which way are we going to decide? We got an election coming up in, in several months. The people who are willing to hold our country hostage, should they not go? The people who voted for massive tax breaks to enrich the very wealthy at the expense of everyone else, literally at the, the, the expense of 99% of us, should they not go? The people who are telling us they have no plan other than slashing and burning Social Security and Medicare to solve our debt and deficit problems, should they not go? People with no vision, no policy, no clue, should they not go? I get that we've, we've gotten into this moment where politics is about my team. My, my wearing my colors, my, my red hat or my blue hat. But shouldn't it be about something a little bit more about, oh, I don't know, making lives better, doing something? Just kind of a thought that I'm going to throw out there? Shouldn't it be somewhere in the realm of that? But I look at this and I'm just, I'm, I'm angry. I'm angry for my children. Because, look, we're not in the danger zone yet. $34 trillion is a lot of money. It's still not, we're not Greece. I had someone tell, oh, we're Greece. No, we're not. We're, we're, st- we're still somewhere in the, what is it, 120, 125 to, to 1 GDP ratio, uh, which, you know, I got I to gotta tell you, you know, the average, the average citizen would be thrilled to be in that, that kind of debt ratio. But we're, we're not doing the right things in the right moments now. It seems like we're drunk with idiocy. We can't keep creating billionaires and give them no responsibility to the rest of us. Sorry, that's not how it goes. Uh, Which is why we do need people in Congress who are going to stand up and fight for working people. Uh, That's why I look at the Congressional Labor Caucus. Uh, This week they sent a letter to President Biden um, saying, hey, you need to look into this uh, this this purchase of U.S. steel by uh, Japanese steel company Nippon, and, and look, this is to me a huge deal. Uh, they 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 point out in the letter that this has got national security implications. Uh, that you know we need to have domestic uh, steel production. Uh, the letter also expresses support for the National Economic uh, Council director. Uh, Lael Brennard's comments that this acquisition appears to deserve serious scrutiny. And and for me, it's simple. You know, why would you sell off or allow to be sold off to a foreign company 
one of the last big steel companies you have in this country. Now understand, uh, Japan is an ally now, uh, but this is this is this is a problem. And will the administration look into it? I'm sure, but will our laws stop stop anything? I don't know. And this is where I keep coming back to the idea that we do need to have some antitrust legislation. We do need to have some kind of regulatory oversight to look into, you know, this kind of foreign co- countries taking over, you know, key pieces of, of manufacturing. Because what happens if they decide, you know what, we don't really want the company. We just want who their customers we just want their machinery. We want what they are. We're just going to move it all back to Japan. We're going to fire all those workers, tens of thousands of good-paying uh, union jobs uh, with middle-class incomes in communities that, that desperately need the, the, the revenue and the, and the wages. Um, we're just going to pull it all out. They own it. Who's to say they can't? And I'm not saying that they will, but, you know, I got to be honest, I'm... I'm dead set against this happening. There were there were suitors in this country willing to take it over. Uh, now you've got this letter that was sent by uh, 53, I think 53 members of Congress on a bipartisan basis uh, that said, "Look, you know, we want to see a comprehensive regulatory review of this acquisition uh, to ensure that it doesn't hamper our national security." And uh, you know. For me, kind of a no-brainer, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, so in the coming days, I'm sure we're going to be reaching out to members of the Congressional Labor Caucus uh, to get some folks on to talk about what this could mean and, and why, why it's so important. Uh, but I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Going to take a quick break. Right back. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1965. That was the day that 8,000 social workers went on strike in New York City. For 28 days that bitter cold January, these workers marched on the picket lines. They were members of the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees, District Council 37, and the Social Service Employees Union. In walking off the job, these working people defied a New York law that forbade public sector workers from going on strike. Ten of the city's 25 welfare offices were completely shut down by the strike. One of the main issues of the action was the massive caseload each worker was expected to carry. Some of the workers who helped organize the action brought their experiences from the civil rights movement, and specifically in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality. They were fighting not only for better working conditions, but also better services for their clients. One rallying call for the strike became rehabilitation, not humiliation. Welfare rights and civil rights activists supported the work action. Quickly, the city moved to get an injunction against these working people who were standing up 
for better conditions. Mayor Robert Wagner fired all of the striking workers. 19 strike leaders were thrown in jail for two weeks. With mounting pressure coming from labor and civil rights leaders, the city agreed to appoint a five-person panel to settle the dispute. The resulting contract made considerable gains for the social workers. Caseloads were capped at 60 clients. They also won improvements in pay, health insurance, vacation, and sick time. The strike is seen as an important victory by public sector workers, not only gaining a better workplace, but also improving service to the public. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, interestingly enough, on Wednesday, there was, uh, I'm going to call this a coordinated exercise. You know, we've seen this kind of stuff on the right before. You may remember, you know, some of the, uh, some of the marches on capitals during the pandemic where they were, they were, they were gauging responses. Uh, but on Wednesday, you had several Capitol buildings have bomb threats called in, and several of them evacuated. Uh, you know, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, uh, Michigan, uh, Montana, Maine. Uh, in fact, you know, Minnesota had uh, you know some some folks. Connecticut, you know, was looking into it, and and to have them all happen in around the same period of time, you know, shows me that there was some coordination there. That there's somebody paying attention, and and I argue, gauging response. That this is about watching how each of these 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 capital buildings respond to threats. How you know how things roll out. You know, you know if there's a threat, do they take it seriously? You know this this kind of stuff is scary, because it's it's only the next step to where there's actually a bomb going to be there. And I fear we're heading towards some 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 scary times. Uh, this election, the the rhetoric is heated. I'm hoping people are, are are stepping back a little bit and going, "Wait a second, this isn't who we are. Uh, we're better than this." Uh, you know, when when I was on vacation, I had the opportunity to talk to someone from Canada, and and what's interesting is, you know. <laughs> Uh, well, he he admitted he would have been, you know, a red hat, you know, MAGA uh, guy here in the U.S. Uh, he said, "Look, you know, we're a lot more sane. We're we're, you know, you know, we're not that violent." And he said, "Look, you know, the the rhetoric that's coming out is is much more heated in the U.S. than is in Canada. They want actions, you know, but done in a in a nice way. It's the way it was explained to me. Whereas, you know, with and again, Canada is a gun culture as well." Uh, we're an assault weapon culture. You know, we've been raised in this this Rambo mentality. And this you get some of the some of the stories I get from people, this 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 mindset that, you know, they're take January sixth, for instance. Uh, I remember on the fifth reading some of the the parlor uh, in the comments and reading some of the the stories and you know the stuff coming out, you know, how you know, you know, if they come take my guns, we're going to stack up bodies. You know, tough guy, you know, macho, loudmouth kind of stuff. That you hope that they're just, you know, just, 
you know, blowing off steam, that they don't really mean what they're saying. It's just, it's all bravado. I, 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 back then I was, I was not so sure. I was like, well, you know, maybe it's just bravado. Maybe it happens. Uh, but I was expecting bloodshed on January 6th. And I don't know how, if you're the Capitol Police or you're in charge of the Capitol, how you didn't know what was coming. Uh, those of us who were paying attention expected there to be chaos. In fact, you know, you, you had people saying, you know, all hell was going to break loose. I now am, am, am a lot more concerned than I was even back then. Because the we've normalized a lot of the, the rhetoric. We've normalized a lot of the, the, the kind of stuff that, you know, 10 years ago we would have never accepted. The kind of behavior that that never would have flown. And this really is the Trump effect. You know, while he is not responsible for the Republican Party, he is responsible for legitimizing and, and normalizing some really ugly behavior. The Republican Party was heading this direction for a very long time. You know, the joke of, you know, Pat Buchanan's speeches being better in their original German back in 92 was not... was. was was not a surprise. Uh, they're moving in that direction. They were always flirting with the racists and the homophobes and the white supremacists and all of those. They've, they've always been in that, but they've always kind of held them in, at arm's length in check. They've never, like the Trump era, embraced them the way they did. So when I see this kind of stuff, I see that, you know, they're not bomb threats being called in. And in multiple places, that concerns me because there's a coordination here that that could be quite frightening and and lives could be lost now again these are the pro-life people mind you you know the pro-life people who you know these are the folks who tell you how much they love they love life especially the children uh, because after all their biggest accomplishment is they overturned Roe uh, which has caused chaos across the country and I look at Texas uh, where, you know, virtually outlawed abortion, across, no matter what. And the the federal government had issued a uh, some guidance on ER doctors on how they're to proceed with uh, with 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 women coming in pregnant and and, you know, life saving abortive care in the event that this needed to happen. And they said, look, you know, if this happens, you, you, you have a mandate to perform this care. Well, now you have a, uh, a Texas judge who has said, no, that's not how it is. And now a federal appeals court, uh, the Fifth Circuit, uh, that has ruled that, mm, nope, uh, no federal, re federal regulations do not require emergency rooms to perform life-saving abortive care. Nope, nope. And, and that doctors who do it could be held accountable because if state law prohibits it. This is bad stuff. And this is the kind of stuff where you go, uh, women, are you paying attention? Because look, you may, not, you may not be in favor of abortion, but in the event that something like this happens, that your life is in danger, and the child's not going to survive anyway. And I know I've, I've had friends who... Uh, you know, they're they're extremely religious, and you know, and, you know, struggle with the, uh, with with the the, the DNC they call it. Uh, I'm I'm not 100 sure what the the name is. Uh, but they struggled with that mightily. 
but ended up eventually going through it anyway because it was going to going to save their lives. Imagine being in a state where that was no longer the option, where your option was hope you don't die. This is where we've now come. Uh, now, the interesting thing is the right has lost a lot of steam on this issue, and the left has kind of picked it up. So you know maybe the pendulum will swing back. Maybe uh, you'll you'll see some some legislative action down the road. Uh, maybe on the federal level. Maybe 2024 is that year. But I look at this and I just go, you know, it's there's something seriously wrong with the system that would allow this to happen. Honestly, but it is Texas after all. So you know if it is Texas, <clears throat> what do you expect? Uh, and finally, I have to get to this. Speaking of, of Texas, probably my favorite story. And this is where we're going to going to end because lying must come naturally to this woman. Former Texas, Texas Representative Myra Flores, who is now running for her seat, uh, evidently um, she's been accused of routinely stealing photos of Mexican food from other social media sites. <laughs> I am not kidding. I am not making this up. Routinely stealing pictures of other people's food and then saying that she made that. that and, and passing it off as her cooking. Passing it off as her doing it. Saying, look at the wonderful meal I prepared for myself. Isn't this wonderful looking when it's not her? It's not even her photo, let alone her food. And they're calling it, what was it, uh, Grubgate? And I'm going, why... How 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 easy, how naturally is lying to you? How easy is it for you to just make things up? That this is something you would lie over. It's incredible to me. Uh, but Grubgate, uh, it's real. Check it out. Uh, and the pictures, I, I looked, not even great pictures, to be honest. Not even great pictures. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email rick, Email rick. at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show where working people come to talk.